To Intergalactic Cracks Wee Bitter Crack podcast. My name is Alice and today I'm joined once again by Ethan and Zuri. Today I'll be interviewing Zuri about herself and the work she's doing for her PhD. So Zuri, um, can we get a bit of background, a bit of where did you grow up, what brought you to AOP, that kind of thing? I of course, so um, hello I'm Zuri. Um, I am from Donegal, Ireland. That's where I was born and I grew up. But then my mother is actually from the north of Spain, the Basque country. So whenever I was 12, I moved out there and lived there while I did my secondary school education. And after that, I decided I wanted to come back to Ireland. So I went to Queen's University in Belfast and that's where I did my undergrad and master's in physics. Um, I always knew that I was interested in the natural sciences. Astronomy was one of them, but I didn't get much of a chance to learn about it before uni. Um, and then once I was in uni, I had a few modules on astronomy. And of course, that just kind of blew my mind. And I decided that's what I wanted to focus on more. Um, and then I did my master's also in Queens and I did my master's on studying asteroids. I also had the first, my first opportunity to use a telescope for the first time and take some of my own data to then reduce it, etc. Um, Wait, so you, then... did, you did actual observations as part of your uni degree? Yes. Yes, yeah, I did. I did so... as well. Oh, I apparently went to the wrong university then, jeez. <laughs> yeah, so they have this uh, quite small amateur telescope on top of the physics building in Queens. I don't actually know if it's still in use because this was back in 2018, 19 or so. But yeah, we got to observe our own asteroids and then reduce the data. So that was just kind of even more of a mind-blowing experience. Um, and that's where I started my interest in solar system science as well. Hmm. So then... After my master's, I took a year out, did some work, realized that the industrial world wasn't for me and I wanted to continue in academia. So I started, of course, applying for PhDs, had my interview at AOP. I liked the project. I liked my supervisor. And then, um, yeah, I got an offer and here I am today. Hmm. I'm actually curious about something you said. So I know you're fluent in Spanish and it is Basque that they speak in? Basque, yeah. yeah. So how long were you actually living there for, out of curiosity? Uh, in the Basque country, I was living for six years. So that's basically all of my teenage years. Uh, w when I was younger, my mum spoke to myself and my brother in Basque. So I grew up bilingual. And every summer, we'd go out to the Basque country, see my family. And then once I moved out there when I was 12, I learned Spanish along the way too. So quite useful mm. to have three languages now. 
No, I, I know. I know what you mean because uh, so obviously my family uh, came. Uh, half my family came from America, so I'd often go visit them as well. And it was really handy being able to speak two languages because I could speak English traditional and English simplified whenever <laughs> I went to America. Oh, dear. you can speak. You can speak American. <laughs> yes, I can speak American, but. Hmm. No, it's yeah. It's, it's actually. I remember when you came back from your for the first fellowship you had. Um, you, you had such a Spanish accent when you were oh, back. No, it, was, it was it was noticeable, but it was oh, really dear. good. It, I don't notice it. I uh, well, maybe it was like first couple of days then that, that you were mm-hmm. back. But, uh, well, maybe yeah. you were just paying more attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just I had the same thing happen to me when I came back from the United States. Apparently, I was talking like uh, some something like a New York or something, <laughs> which to me just sounds completely wrong. I, I don't think I sound anything like that, but apparently. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. I find that whenever you're moving over and back from countries, especially when you speak different languages, I call it the cambio de chip. That's in Spanish, but it's like the change of chip. Which basically, what I mean by that is, whenever you're living somewhere and speaking the language, you start thinking in that language, and then the speaking comes naturally. And then mm. when you go to the other country you're still thinking in the language and you're translating in your head. So it takes an extra few seconds Mm. to catch on to anything or express yourself. But then after a while, you get the change in chip. And Mm. uh, yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. Linguist coincidence. So I think my next question is specifically what brought you to AOP rather than kind of a, a normal university because we're, we're quite different and um yeah what brought you specifically to AOP well I guess the most straightforward answer would be the project because I saw the project I liked it and then I spoke with the supervisor who's my my now supervisor and I think we gelled well so um I guess that's the most straightforward answer and then once I learned a bit more about AOP as a place and found out that it was more, um, it was smaller than typical universities and the culture slightly different. The fact that there's also opportunities for more outreach in the planetarium and doing things like this, the, the podcast, I thought that was also something that I found really interesting and um, something that I really enjoy still so far. Hmm. And then leading on from that, you said that the project was what brought you here. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you tell us a bit about your project, what your kind of overall work is on? All right. So um, the working title of my PhD is Polarimetry of Small Bodies of the Solar System. And a small solar system body basically encompasses anything that's in our solar system that isn't a planet or a dwarf planet. And... Um, in my case, this is usually mostly just asteroids and comets. Okay. You said the word polarimetry there. Um, and definitely not because I don't remember what it means. And definitely for the people <laughs> listening, what does polarimetry mean? Yeah, so polarimetry is basically the measurement of the polarization of light. So the next question would be, what the heck is polarization? So it's a property of light that's often forgotten about. It's not, polarization isn't really a concept that's very easy to grasp or even to explain, especially if you don't have diagrams 
or something to draw on. So I'm going to try my best to paint a picture with words for yourselves and the listeners, of course. So light is a type of energy that travels in waves. And there are three fundamental properties of light, which is brightness, color, and polarization. And as humans, we only tend to be familiar with the first two, brightness and color, because that's what our human eyes can actually differentiate, because we can tell the difference between light and dark, and we can also discriminate colors, red, blue, green, everything in between. But we can't see the polarization of light. So to understand this, I want you to envision a 2D light wave. So if you were to draw this on a piece of paper, this would look like a squiggly line that goes up and down at the same height and at a constant frequency. The height of this light wave, or what we call the amplitude, corresponds to the intensity or the brightness of the light. The taller the light wave, the higher the intensity, the brighter we see it. And the frequency of the light wave corresponds to the color. So a light wave that's more kind of squished together and having a higher frequency will be more blue, while a light wave that's more stretched out and has a lower frequency will be more red. But when we talk about the polarization, we refer to the orientation of these oscillations. So to better understand this, I now want you to envision this 2D light wave that we've mentally drawn on a piece of paper in 3D. So it's still going up and down, but this time it has an actual direction. So in simple terms, the polarization refers to the orientation of these wave oscillations according to a certain reference frame, whether that's up and down or side to side. Of course, in reality, it is a little bit more complex than this, but I don't think it's worth boring you with these details. Um, but the important thing is, when, light, when a light wave has a preferred orientation of oscillation, we say it's polarized. And when it doesn't have a preferred, a preferred orientation, it's unpolarized. Mm. So that's, that's quite a lot to unpack and grasp. <laughs> um, so hopefully, the, sorry, the, go ahead. The example I always liked, which we did in school, but if you, you can also get sunglasses like this as well. Um, you can't, yes, you can't see polarization, but you can see that light is polarized because you can get those polarized lenses. Mm -hmm. um, and my sort of all-time favorite example is uh, if you have your phone or any sort of LCD screen um, and you put it in front of a polarized lens, such as sunglasses, or good sunglasses anyway, um, and you rotate your phone. Uh, at certain points, the light from the phone will be almost completely blocked, so it'll appear as if it was, it was, if it was off, whereas at uh, 90 degrees tangential, rot I don't know, 90 degrees rotated from that point, it will be completely clear as if the phone was, uh, not, as if there's no sunglasses at all. So, yeah, I always found that an interesting facet of polarization, although mm -hmm. I do know, as, as you say, it's a lot more complicated than just a phone in hand, but yeah, yeah I'll Another... leave the science to you. Another uh, everyday example of polarization is when we use sunglasses. So basically light coming from what we could say natural sources like the sun or a fire or a flame, they're usually unpolarized and there's different things, different processes that can polarize light. One of which is when light is reflected from a surface. So for example, when we're looking at the sea, we see the light that is reflected 
from the surface of the water. And whenever that reflection happens, it becomes partially polarized. So to our human eyes, unpolarized and polarized light look exactly the same. But with using clever techniques like polarizers, we can actually choose to block out or measure this polarization. So we can use polarized sunglasses to block out the polarized light that is being reflected from the surface of water. Hmm. I might be misremembering, but I think kind of the modern 3D glasses also use polarization. So they, you've got kind of the two different directions of that polarized light and they let in different ones. Um, I don't know the details of it, but it's kind of a, a fun. I think those are the old ones, the new ones, because the, the new ones I've seen at least are electronic and they like flicker. I forget how they work exactly, but I know what you mean, electronic. the old ones. Yeah, no, I kid you not. We had a 3D TV at home. Never used it, mind you. Wow. <laughs> for the 3D. Uh, yeah, and it's like you actually had to put batteries in it. I was like, how the hell is this supposed to work? But yeah. it was it it like flicker or something. I think it only lets in certain frames. Or maybe it, it was the it might be that when it flickers, it's changing between the different polarized light directions. Um I was thinking more the old ones are like the green and red. Yeah. Green and red, blue and red, yeah. Yeah, I've never think, heard yeah. of these electronic um, 3D glasses, so that's interesting. I must look this up. I think Matthew actually has a pair of the uh, the old ones, and I remember he was just wearing them one day as I was going around the observatory. <laughs> so uh, maybe he was conducting a polarimetry experiment. <laughs> I'll have to ask about that. So, moving on from, like, well, we've talked about how polarimetry works, but how do you then use that in your work to to look at your small bodies. Okay, so um, I just talked about polarized sunglasses, which are used to block out polarized light. In astronomical polarimetry, in my field anyway, we're actually we're actually interested in measuring that polarization. So as I mentioned before, uh, light can become polarized when it's reflected by a surface. And when we're looking at solar system objects, we're not actually looking at the light that that body has created. Instead, we're looking at the sunlight that's been reflected by either uh, the solid surface, in the case that it's an asteroid, or by the particles that are in the atmosphere. So, for example, in the case of comets, they eject volatiles, and this creates what you could almost say is an atmosphere around the comet. So these particles in the atmosphere also reflect the light and polarize it. So <clears throat> when this reflection occurs, the light interacts with the materials in either the outer crust, the outer crust in the case of asteroids, or these particles in the atmosphere in the case of comets. And as a result, certain properties of the light will change dep depending on what the reflecting material is made of and how it's structured. So there's different observing techniques astronomy, astronomers can use to extract these different um, properties of light that we're interested in, such as spectroscopy, photometry. In my case, we use polarimetry to study the polarization of the reflected light. So in the world of asteroids and comets, these different techniques can tell us about the information about the solid surface, 
or, or the coma, such as the composition, particle size, and the structure. Well, I'm sorry, what's the, the, the coma? Is, is that the tail or is that the, the body or? Okay, so let me see. So comets are made of rocky materials and volatiles. When I mean volatiles, I mean ices. And whenever the comet is very far away from the sun, it's very cold, these volatiles stay solid. And then as it comes closer to the inner solar system, it starts to get heated up by the sun. So whenever the comet starts coming closer to the sun, it begins to warm up. And when it warms up, these volatiles begin to sublimate. And this creates a kind of ball of gas around the comet. And this is what we call the coma. Whenever this sublimation happens, it also begins to release some of these dust particles. And these dust particles and gas particles over time um, kind of fall behind the comet and form the tail. So that's the difference between the cometary coma and the tail. Hmm. And sublimation, sublimation is, of course, the transfer of a is it solid to solid straight to gas. Yes, yes, that's it. That's it. Hmm. If any of you were out looking at the the comet um, in start of February, you might have seen the the green um, around it, which was part of that. Did you guys get to see the comet? Yes. Oh, was, oh, wow. I did. It was cloudy every year, every day I remember to look. Gosh. Mm. Um, <laughs> we did a trip to the Ohm Dark Sky Park, um, and that was good because they've got a telescope that's, I think it's a 13, 14 inch. So, uh, oh, I got... so, so you got to use it, you got to see it through your telescope? Yes, they took some pictures and then emailed them us, which was great. Oh. Um, Brag about it. You can't, I'll, I'll get the picture up. You can't see it on the podcast, but <laughs> we'll get an audio description. Uh, yeah. yeah, I try to see it with my bare eyes because um, right now I'm in. I'm here in La Palma, uh, working at one of the telescopes. We'll talk about this in another episode, I think. But here we have very dark skies, and I did try to see it with my bare eyes, and I couldn't see it. Oh wow. <laughs> For the uh, for the listeners, by the way, who can't see this, uh, it looks like a comet. <laughs> it's it's green. It's got a, a green aura around it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can't really see the tail, but maybe that's just me. I don't know. Can you see the there's tail? There's not on it? much of a tail on it in this photo. It's there's a bit oh. of like a direction that you can see. Can't make heads or tails of it. Like a glowing. <laughs> Yeah, so usually the tail would be less dense than the coma. So if it's less dense, there's less material to reflect the light. And that's why we can't usually see the tails as often or as clearly. Mm. Um, and what is it about like comets and asteroids that kind of interest you so there's a few different reasons i guess um so asteroids and comets are thought to be remnants of the solar system and so studying them can give us insights into the different conditions that existed during this formation 
And so by studying them, we can learn about the processes that led to the formation of planets and other solar and other celestial bodies and in general the solar system so yeah they're basically fossils of the formation of the solar system um another reason for me why i think they're they're interesting is their proximity so compared to everything else that's out there stars galaxies black holes and so on objects in our solar system are basically within arm's reach Feel free to disagree with me if you want, whether that makes them more interesting or not. Oh, well, I've got an entire podcast with which uh, I, I can do that, but uh, so, oh, go, go ahead. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, we've actually already sent multiple space missions to asteroids and comets, as well as the planets, of course. Um, and we even returned some samples to Earth. So the fact that we can actually reach them from Earth, I think that's something that's very cool. Mm -hmm. And then on this topic, we can also talk about the potential hazards that some of these bodies could have on Earth. And, you know, some asteroids are on trajectories that bring them close to Earth. We call these near Earth asteroids. And some of them have the potential risk of harming us in the case that they were to come straight to Earth. And so by studying them, we can better understand these objects and we'll more likely be able to find and develop strategies to mitigate any possible catastrophe um, if it were ever to happen in our in our lifetime. So just look how exciting and successful the DART mission was, for example. Um, I'm not going to go into it too much right now. I think we're also going to talk about that in a, in a later episode. Um, yeah. And then just a final point why I think asteroids and comets are interesting is their possible link to astrobiology. So when the solar system was young and chaotic and in its teenage years, you know, a bit rebellious, there's asteroids flying around left, right and center and crashing into everything. So there's a chance that these asteroids played a big role in actually bringing water and um, the organic mo molecules to Earth, which were necessary to build life. So studying asteroids can help us better understand the origins of life and potentially life outside of our own solar system elsewhere in the universe. So I've always been curious, I don't know, maybe this won't be something that either viewer would really know, but like how how big of an asteroid or how many asteroids would have needed to have hit Earth with water to get the amount of water and even just ice we have on the planet today? Like surely that must have been well, I mean, you think the biggest asteroids in history, like the the Yucatan one, the one that killed the dinosaurs, I can't imagine that carrying enough water to cover 70% of the Earth's surface. Um, I don't know the exact amounts. There was probably a bit of water. I can't imagine it would have been all of it, but because um, there was the late heavy bombardment, um, which was before life and everything. So, and I think there were a lot of impacts then, which might have brought lots of water. I don't know how much. Um, volatiles, probably a lot of them, I would mm. say. Yeah, mm. I, <laughs> I don't, I don't really know. I don't have an exact number or answer, but I would say quite a lot, because mm. asteroids actually don't have a very large concentration of water comets 
tend to have a much higher concentration of volatiles. But after uh, the Rosetta space mission, which was to uh, the Rosetta space mission was to a comet, Comet 67P, and they did some tests there, and they figured out that the water they found on the comet is actually less similar to the water that we find here on on Earth. So this kind of gave us the conclusion that most of the water that we have here on Earth more likely came from asteroids than it did from comets. And asteroids, very low density in water and volatiles in general compared to comets. So it must have been quite a lot of them, <laughs> I think. Not 100% sure. Hmm. Well, sounds like a, something we need to get a guest on, a special guest on to speak <laughs> speak about in the future. Yeah, we'd have to find someone who does it. Asteroid history, solar system history, something like that, I don't know. Mm. Or just do our research before. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's probably the more likely answer. Yeah. Okay, so I think this will probably be our last question we have time for, other than a secret bonus question. Um, so I know you're currently um, at La Palma. Um, what is it, kind of what project are you working on over there and uh, what are you doing right now? Okay, so yes, I'm here in La Palma. I'm working at the Nordic Optical Telescope and I'm here for a one-year studentship. And so basically, I'm learning to become an observational, observational astronomer. But what I'm doing at the telescope isn't exactly connected to my own work. I've actually had the opportunity to take some measurements that are for my work, but they're two separate things. Um, my main project at the moment is working with polar metric data of the DART mission, which is just what I've just mentioned there now. Um, as I said before, I think we're going to leave this for another episode, but I'll give a very quick summary. So DART, which stands for the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, is a NASA slash ESA space mission that sent a spacecraft to crash into the moonlit body of a double asteroid system in an attempt to change its orbit around the larger body. So when this impact happened, it caused a huge dust cloud to be basically spat out into space, made of material from what's under the up, the upper crust of the surface. So this would be the same way if a meteorite would land on Earth, it would kick up a big dust cloud um, made of material from underneath the surface. So we expect this material that's under the surface of the asteroid to be different than the material that's right on the surface. So basically the material on the surface over time becomes kind of cooked and worn away due to what we call space weathering uh, processes. Space weathering is... Um... Like weathering, but in space? <laughs> sure. So asteroids are a bit like humans, where if we sit out in the sun, we're going to get a suntan over time. Or if you're Irish, you're more likely to get a burn. But unlike humans, asteroids don't have regenerative skin, which means that this outer crust, when it becomes cooked by the sun, when it's bombarded by dust particles, cosmic rays, it stays like that while the material underneath this outer crust is going to be protected from all of these 
processes and it will be closer to what it was like when it first formed at the start of the solar system than what it's like now. So that's why we were interested in um, in observing the asteroid because this big dust cloud that was spat out into, into space gave us a unique opportunity to peer under the surface of an asteroid. So yeah, uh, myself and my supervisor, we observed the DART mission uh, with, polar, with polarimetry and we've been working with data from both the VLT, Very Large Telescope in Chile, and the Nordic Optical Telescope, which is where I'm at right now. In fact, I got to take some of the observations that uh, I got to later reduce and work with. Um, mm. But yeah, so, so far the results are pretty cool and interesting, and I'm in the process of writing a paper and hope to publish soon enough. Um, I have a few other projects happening on the side, but I'll, I'll leave my answer there. Cool. Um, so I think we'll leave questioning Zuri to death there um, <laughs> um, and move on to our, our final section of the podcast. So we're trying something new um, where we answer a random astronomy question from non-astronomers. Um, so I kind of put out to friends and family for some questions just for this first episode. Um, and yeah, Ethan, you were going to ask that. Oh, I was going to ask it. Oh, I see I how it is. Oh, sure. Uh, so the question for this week, um, submitted by... Um... My sister, Jess. Jess, yes. If she's uh... listening. Hi, hi. Jess. <laughs> Hello, Jess. Uh, so which planet in the solar system would have the best view, in your opinion? Now, earlier, before we started the recording, I said correctly, and I'm sure all of our responsible listeners will agree, that this would be Mercury. However, there are some differences of opinion here, which... Uh, if Saturn. It Saturn is, Saturn is Saturn. the correct answer. Yeah, you go stand on a mountain ridge on Saturn. I dare you. It doesn't say you have to be standing on solid ground. What are you going to see from Saturn? The beautiful rings surrounding Saturn. Oh, great, the tiny rings. From Mercury, you have the entire sun filling up the entire sky. Burn your eyeballs out. Burn your eyeballs out, Ethan. Also, Wear sunglasses! Polarized sunglasses. <laughs> Polarized sunglasses, yes. <laughs> okay, Ethan, do you know what the rotation period of Mercury is? Uh, yes, if I remember rightly, it is uh, something along the lines of, in the rough region of 59 Earth days. <laughs> I, also, I also Googled this. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you're on Mercury, that means you're going to get 60 days of burning your eyeballs out, and then 60 days of just freezing Cold. to death. You say that like it's a problem for me. You wouldn't so, like the warmth, though. Isn't isn't the surface of Mercury also... No, no, I was thinking of Venus, never mind. Venus, you wouldn't be able to see anything because yeah. of all the yeah. horrible Luckily clouds. Yeah. Does that mean your sleeping schedule also accommodate this rotation period where you're awake for 60 days and then asleep for 60 days? 
Look, to be honest, that's basically where my sleeping schedule is right now, so I don't think it's too much of an issue. <laughs> wow, can you imagine the sunsets you would see from from Mercury? That no. you wouldn't see from Saturn. Oh. Hmm. You'd still get a sunset. Actually, it wouldn't so... be as bright, but... But Mercury doesn't have an atmosphere, so you wouldn't get a sunset. You would, but it wouldn't be diffused by the atmosphere, so it would be sort of a You'd see the shadow yeah, of the planet yeah, yeah. overtaking. Well, no, you wouldn't because it goes very slowly, but you know. But I mean, you wouldn't have any pretty colours in the sky or nice clouds that make pretty patterns. <laughs> the so... sun reflecting off the ice in Saturn's rings. There, there you go. There is actually, uh, there's a game called Star Citizen, which I don't know if I, have I talked to either of you about it before? No. Right. Long story short, it's a space sci-fi MMO style game. And I'm not going to go into the details here. This isn't a gaming podcast, unfortunately. Um, But they have a gas planet, which you can go down to, and it models the atmosphere, including the atmospheric composition. And I swear to God, the sunset on that is one of the best things I've seen in gaming ever. I will concede that to you, Alice, but you didn't (laughs) say Jupiter, so I can't concede it to you completely. I think you could get some pretty good views of Jupiter from Saturn. No, 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 no. I mean, like, of the sun from Jupiter, but I also realise I'm I'm a bit biased when talking about stars, so yes. Yeah, you like the sun a lot. (laughs) Eh, It's not as good as other stars, which I'll talk about next week's episode. (laughs) So I have an answer. I don't know if this is cheating because technically it wouldn't be a planet, but I would say one of the moons of either Jupiter or Saturn. I'm going to have to go with Jupiter because I just think Jupiter's very cool. But if you're standing on a moon of Jupiter, you get to see Jupiter in its in its hall, basically in front of you. And depending on the, the time of year i guess you could say you might possibly see other moons at the same time like have you seen avatar you know the film avatar the new one or the oh yeah i've seen the first one yeah i think in the first yeah. one you can see it as well um you see the sky in it and i think the planet of avatar they're on some moon of some big planet i don't know and the skies and that are just I think amazing. I think at this rate, we're going to have to have an episode where we talk about some of the best views in science fiction. Yeah, because I've science... astro in science fiction. No, no, that's the that's the follow up episode. <laughs> but no, I've got there's a um I've got a bit of oh, sorry, I realize we're drifting off topic here, and I'm probably have to cut this one short. But I've got a sort of planetarium tool called Space Engine. Like it's not a game, but you can play around with it. And it's it's really hard to explain, but it takes observational data from any source it can, basically, or sorry, the devs have, and then they sort of put it into this sort of planetarium thing where you can just go around. My God, they've even got the relativistic effects of things like neutron stars and black holes. Wow. So you go up to a black hole that's accreting, and again, I, I, for our listeners, I do apologize, but it is stunning. And uh, yes, yeah, so I think we have to have a podcast episode on mm-hmm. stuff like that on another time. Mm-hmm. But what's this called? Sorry, Space Engine. Wow, Space Engine. Hm. Appropriate name. Anyway, I well, Alice, I don't know. Are we out of time here, or 
Yeah, I think we're probably out of time. So thank you for listening to us here at Weber to Crack. We should be back next month and we'll be talking with Ethan about his research and a bit about him. Until then, you can find out more about AOP or send us some of your questions like the one we we answered just now. Um, And you can do that on Facebook or on Twitter at Armour Planet, Instagram at Armour Planet, YouTube at Armour Observatory and Planetarium, um, our website www.armour.space, or you can email us your questions at uh, podcast at armour.ac.uk. And just one more question for the both of you. I know we missed it out last time. Do you need some space? Absolutely. After all the bad jokes I made, sure. The Arma Observatory and Planetarium is a registered charity and part of the Northern Ireland Government Department for Communities. To find out more about AOP, follow us on Facebook, Twitter at Arma Planet. Instagram at Armagh Planet, YouTube at Armagh Observatory and Planetarium, or check out our website where we host our blog, Astronauts, www.arma.space. <laughs>